There was there was something I wanted to ask you about um, um, about uh, the political situation in 1945 when when Labour won that huge kind of victory um, in, oh, in yes. the election was that like a general was that because of the hope everyone had um, that things would be different and change. <clears throat> Um, what 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 was your take on that on on what happened at that time? Well, well, I think talking about it with with my dad, uh, it sounded so ungrateful to kick Winston Churchill. And of course, it did come mm. back the, fall, the yeah. next four years later. But it seemed so ungrateful that he'd got us through the war. But you see, a lot of people said, "Oh, he's a warmonger. He's a warmonger," you know, and. Uh, of course, the, the, the men came back from the war and uh, there were no houses. Such a lot of houses had been demolished. Uh, so they, they couldn't find anywhere to live. And some of them didn't have jobs to come back to. Uh, the women that had the jobs had now been sacked to make way for men. So there was a lot of um, 
a lot of resentment in the country. Mm. And I think they just wanted a, you know, um, well, it's supposed to be a land fit for heroes. Mm. And they didn't feel it was. And I think uh, that's that's what actually happened. Is that is that uh, was that a, a saying at the time? Was that a land fit for heroes? Yes, yes. it was. Mm. I've never heard that. Yes, it was. Um, I, I'm trying to think who actually said it. It wasn't Winston Churchill. I can't remember who said it's a land fit for heroes. You're coming would back it, to a land fit for heroes. Would it have been Bevin, you, maybe? Sorry. Would it have been Bevin, Linus Bevin? Could have been, could have yeah. been, yes. Um, you, uh, you, you um, referred to your half brother being in Burma. Um, my uh, cousin was in Burma. Uh, that was my mother's side of the family. Mm. Una's, Una, um, Una's brother, and he didn't get home till quite late. Those those boys from Burma had a terrible time. Yeah. They, they did, were yeah. like the forgotten army, really. Yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, I remember being over there visiting them when he arrived. When he arrived home, there was great excitement. And Uncle Will went with his wife, his young wife, to meet him at the station. And he came back, and I remember Aunt Clara said, "Well, where is he?" She, he said, "He's gone home to rest. He'll be round to see you shortly." And they live, his wife lived nearby. So my cousin Una and I were sat at the front waiting for him, you know. And we we were both absolutely mesmerised when we saw him. He looked like someone who'd been in a prison camp. Mm. He was so thin. It was incredible. And mm. he got tired very quickly, you know. His, his yeah. cheeks were sunken in. He was half starved. Yeah, and of course he had all sorts of illnesses, as well. How long did so, he? So many, yeah. Sorry, Phil, yeah. go ahead. No, I'm just going to say. But funnily enough, he lived to be ninety. Well, that was my next question. <laughs> how how yeah. long did he survive? He survived to be ninety. What? And he's the one oh. that came over after his wife died when she was in the fifties. He had two sons. One went to Australia, and he joined them in Australia and lived in Melbourne. Oh, really? Yes. It, it's funny you should say that because my Uncle Cecil, who was one in the 14th Army, emigrated to Adelaide in the 50s. Really? Oh, really? Yeah, he was a 10-pound pom. <laughs> so the 10-pound pom for those yes. uh, those yeah. in overseas countries or, or who are uninitiated, what was that, John? Uh, I believe the Australian government would pay your passage and give you ten pounds, or was it the yes. other way around that you could get to Australia just for for ten for pounds, 10 and they'd re yeah. re they'd resettle you and find you yeah. find you a job? Yeah, yes, Canada and, did the same. Yes. Well, and mm. we we had a for a long time Australia quite you know shamefully, but they had a, a white Australia policy. So if you fit the bill, if you were English speaking, if you came from the mother country or somewhere similar to that, and you had, you know, you could um, fit the sort of racial stereotype, you were very welcome. And, and uh, yeah, a 10 pound passage. <coughs> and there were lots and uh, lots of them that came over. Um, mm. Actually, there's a, there was a funny story of a 
teacher that I used to work with at a school, her parents were Scottish um, and they emigrated on a 10-pound passage. And when they got to Melbourne, anyone who knows Melbourne will know that uh, two parts of Melbourne, what, what there's an area of Melbourne called Albert Park, which is very leafy and beautiful and by the beach. And there's another area of Melbourne, it's called Sunshine, and uh, and it's in a sort of a, a poorer area of Melbourne, uh, lower socioeconomic. Anyway, these people arrived in Melbourne and they'd said to them, where would you prefer to go and live, you know, Albert Park or Sunshine? And, and they said, oh, Sunshine sounds so lovely. Oh, it's like the sun shining on me. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's my best Scottish accent, by the way. And um, yeah. so they went to live in Sunshine and the, they've lived there ever since. But they wish they'd gone to live in Albert Park. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so. I had a cousin went, you know. Uh, when we had the pubs, they came to see us just before they went. And, um, well, she was a second cousin. And uh, they were in the 30s, two little girls. And they went over there with her mother, who was a widow, of course. I don't know where they went to live, but it was somewhere where they'd been doing um, trials, you know, uh, was it atomic trials or something, whatever it was. Oh. And she died a few months later of cancer. Oh, oh that was, um, would have been Maralinga. That's, yes. That was yes. in South Australia. The British came over and did atomic testing here in the... Right, in yes, the, yes. In the 50s. Yeah, yeah. Well, and maybe, yeah, maybe in the early 60s. Her husband had a job. Mm, mm. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Now, his two daughters, his two daughters, um, they live in, um, um, oh, up in, up in where it's very hot on the... Uh, in Queensland? No, the other side of the country, Perth. Oh. They live in oh, Perth. Yeah, Perth. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few years ago, uh, they were on a website, and my other cousin, uh, Deborah, uh, saw this, and they were asking if anybody knew anything about Sydney Burroughs, and he came from Manchester. So she she phoned me, and I said, look, I've got photographs of Sydney, and uh, I'll send them to you, and you can send them to these girls, yes. They knew, they knew they knew nothing about their father. Oh, really? The grandfather, rather. Mm-hmm. The grandfather. Because they were only little girls, of course, when, well, they weren't even born when he died. Yes. So, so, yes, so I, they, they wanted to reconnect with their English family, their yes. English roots. Right. They were curious about their grandfather, yes. Oh, mm. wow, wow. So I could tell them quite a lot about him because... He um he used to before he was when he was a young man used to live a child rather used to live with my mother and her mother uh, before my mother was married and he used to come every week to see my mother he looked upon her like a big sister his own mother she married she'd married a cousin's um widower and were four children and she really left her own child behind. To be looked after by my mother, and she she went off, and and that's of course that was Auntie Clara, you see, and uh, she uh, so he he always looked upon my mother as his his big sister, and during the war he had a heart complaint, and the he he failed 
the medical. So he became a special policeman. <laughs> and every week he used to bring my mother half a pound of butter. Ah, that's the episode. <laughs> Did you steal that butter? That's uh, the epi- That's yeah. where the name of the episode comes along now. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> I didn't steal it. I just it just came, yeah. you know, yeah. to me in some magical way. Yeah. Liberate, liberated it. <laughs> and my mother was always onto us about being honest and everything, you know. But she did take the butter. I can tell you. <laughs> oh, I'm sure she did. Doreen, my um, my. My father-in-law, who I I, I I had great register and I really loved him, he was in a reserved occupation during the war. And so uh, anyone who was in a reserved occupation, as you will probably almost certainly know, is used to have to join the Home Guard. So did That's you have nice. a home did you have a home guard detachment or anything around you? Did you used to see them on the streets? Uh, no, uh, we saw the ARP more often than the Home Guard. Mm. Yeah, it, around where I lived. My father was an ARP warden. Um, yes. Um, they, they're air raid precaution wardens, weren't yes, they? Right, yeah. Yes. I think my father in law John would have sympathised because um, my mother in law used to gleefully relate how she'd get up late because she used to work shifts as well, I think, when she was looking after children. And John would have to do her part. I watch duty on, on, yes. the, uh, on, on the roof. Yes. Yeah, my father had to do that two nights a week, uh, stay at work for fire watch duties. They had an incendiary bomb once on the on the roof, which they managed oh. to put out. Um, and, um, but the rest of the time it was ARP. Mm. And of course, uh, he had two friends. One was very tall and one was very short and fat. And the three of them used to wander around together, you know, when the, when the raids were on, you see checking on everybody and whatnot. And he, t- he used to tell me this particular night, they're walking along and one of the roads, it had a, a ditch at the side, you see. And um, this, this um, it was a plane. It, it, the raid, they thought the raid was over and it was do- dawn was breaking. And then this plane came along and it suddenly swooped down and started firing, you see. Oh. So they threw themselves into the ditch and deadly quiet, you know, and then the plane had gone over and this little voice, it was the little fat man, went, never touch me. <laughs> and that broke the eye, you know. <laughs> so he's he came great. His clothes all in a mess, you know. <laughs> well, isn't it great, the, the spirit of people in that kind of situation, potentially life-threatening situation? Yes. And- and people people can make jokes out of it and find yes. find ways not you know not to be terrified <laughs> or totally terrified. Well, the, yes. the the archetypal <laughs> stiff upper lip, isn't it? Really, isn't well, it? Well, people used to get you know if anyone talked uh, down, really, people used to get very angry. You know, uh, it was like careless talk. They call, they call mm. that's careless talk now. You know, trying to depress people, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They treated you as though you were a traitor if you if you said anything derogatory. Mm. Mm. So was that a constant message throughout the war, Doreen? I imagine it would have been, because you, you said you used to go to the pictures quite a lot. Would, 
would that have been yeah. like a constant kind of message that was put out through the media of the time, like the films and the radio? Oh, yes. You used to get these big posters uh, all over the place, but also uh, you'd get them come on the screen as well just to remind people. Mm. Yes. But somehow, through all that, you still have some fond memories of it, don't you? Even though oh, it was, yes. you shunted around and you you had all sorts of worries, there were some really yes, heartwarming I, things that came out of it as well. People helped each other so much. It was incredible. Re people really did help each other, you know. And if, if they got, you know, sometimes they'd get oranges and there'd be an orange if you if you had say you had four children you get two oranges so they got half each you see and um so uh but they'd go down the street knocking on doors oranges oranges you know oh they'd <laughs> let everyone else know, know that there was yeah. something to be had yeah right yes get up there quick like well before they run out you know mm. isn't it funny you know i think crises bring the best and the worst out in people Mm, they do. Yeah. They? You know, they, that, yeah, that's just human nature will always have that. But yes, they're, they're, those people that you talked about, Millie, who would steal furniture or steal belongings or yes. or, or take take over someone's yeah. house. Um, yeah. But then that, you know, that the milk of human kindness of people making sure, looking out for their neighbours, having people, letting people live with them or move in with them when they had nowhere oh, else to did. stay. Yeah. You know, it's just huge yeah. extremes, one extreme to the other, really, isn't yes, it? Yes, it did. Well, yeah. thank you to both of you. Oh, this is just in, in enlightening. And I'm, I'm of a generation that's really interested in this, but, John, you being a little bit older than me, you have a kind of a lived experience with some of this so you've got a direct connection to your own relatives and your own family mm. story that must feel when you listen to the podcast kind of can a connection a strong connection is that a fair comment it's i think it's 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 quite incredible Doreen. you're such a such a good storyteller you've got such a good memory but things that you say connect and reconnect me with things that have happened you know, through my experience with my parents and even my, I mean, the siren suits, one thing, but hearing your, um, when you want to think you bought, your dad bought a car and you called it a shooting break. And I always remember my dad, that's what my dad would call an estate car, a shooting yes, break. A shooting and I used to think it was something to do with <laughs> the way it moved along, you know, but, you know, it was basically a long bodied car that you put a rifle in or a shotgun yes. in. But yeah. I and I hadn't forgotten that I hadn't not that well, thirty years I think it had been since I'd last heard that phrase said. And uh, other things like um, I was saying to Phil about um, your husband working on the TSR two, and yeah. I was also in the air training corps as well, like your brother. And um, when the, when I used to go to my my squadron in Harrow, that we had um, volunteer reserve officers and and civil um civil instructors and one of them had worked on the tsrt and he really? he yeah. and he'd 
there were three or four circuit boards that they used to use in lectures to explain what a resistor was and you know what an electrical component was and he, he said he rescued them from the tsr2 because he didn't want them to go into washing machines so Absolutely. you know yeah because yeah. you said exactly the same thing yeah. when about the TSR tsr2 so it was all those little things that I've, you know, I re, I connect and kind of reconnect with. It's, yeah. it's been such a pleasure to listen to you. Thank you, thank you. It's, it's been lovely talking to you too because you you've heard it, all these things before, these expressions, you know, and mm. you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we we we've got the missing link between me not knowing what some of the things mean <laughs> and somebody who can explain them. And uh, provide a, yeah. a reference point. So, yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm, I've come out of this conversation even smarter. What can I say? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, an episode I was listening today when you said about um, the phone taking six months to connect, because when in the in the late sixties when we first got our phone, it sat on its little table in the hallway, but for ages. But I used to pretend my friends were fall, calling me. And we, everyone was so looking forward to it. I actually, when no one was looking, used to pick the phone up and pretend to talk to my friends before <laughs> it was connected. I saw on um, yeah. I saw on Facebook Marketplace a while back, someone was selling an old telephone table. So these were these little tables that are what probably what your phone sat on, John. They'd Pur sit in the hallway. Purpose made, yeah. Purpose made. <laughs> And they were made for the telephone to sit on a little bit on the end and then a little bit that you could sit on next to the telephone so that you could sit down and, you know, in the hallway and have yeah. a conversation. Yeah. Our phone was the first one in the street. And this was like late 70s. Uh, sorry, late 60s, early 70s. But our phone was the first one in the street. And we basically used to get a queue of people at the door saying, please, can we use your phone? Because they couldn't be bothered yeah. to walk around like to the... To the yeah. And uh, our neighbour, I went to school with her son. Three, um, she, she, she was about three or four doors down, down. But the the phone rang in the middle of the night once and said, oh, "This man answers." Said, "Can I speak to Prim? She, well, she doesn't live here. Yeah, but I really need to talk to her. Could you get her?" <laughs> so my my poor dad, thinking it was some kind of emergency, went and knocked up these people and. This woman came down, Prima name was. Turns out this is a guy she'd been having an affair with and broken up with. So she called my house in the middle of the night. He called my house in the middle of the night, trying to persuade her to, to give up her husband and go away with him. So so the, the Griffiths were complicit in this, you know, in this immoral tryst oh, that was going no, on. No, we were... We we were we were just a communications hub. We weren't complicit in it. Well, you know, when when Christopher was born in 1961, and I was having the baby at home, uh, we weren't on the telephone. So a lady across the road, who was actually French, didn't really speak much English. Her husband, husband was English, and she said, "You know, if you need to call somebody in emergency, you come to me. You come to me. You see." Well, this was, uh, John got up about, I think it was seven o'clock in the morning, the alarm went off and uh, he sort of laid out a bit and I said, um, don't lie there too long 
I said, you can't go to work today. He said, what do you mean? I said, because I'm in labour. <laughs> well, he jumped up and he was in such, because this was his first child, you see. And he was in such a state, he put his slippers on and he ran across the road in his pyjamas and he's hammering on this woman's door, you know. I have to, have to ring, I have to ring, I have to ring. And by eight o'clock, there was an ambulance there with all the gear, uh, you know, all the, mid, all the work. And then following it was a midwife on a bicycle. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you might have started a bit of a trend with that, Millie. Did you start a trend? Did, did it did it follow well, that the, all these women wanted to have not home a births? Lot. There wasn't no? a lot at the time, but some, but I mean, I'd had a baby ten years before, and I did not like being in the hospital. So I thought, like, no, no, I'm not doing that again. I'm having this one at home. Yeah. My mum was the same. And a very good doctor, you see, that uh, was all for it. He he'd been a naval surgeon during the war uh, and uh, Dr Ernie Page, he was a super doctor. He had his own clinic uh, for, for pregnant ladies and um, yeah, he was, he was wonderful. Mm. He kept well, dashing at different times of the day to check on how things were going, you know, <laughs> and the mid midwife it's... stayed there all the time. That isn't, doesn't it, isn't it true that, to say it? though, isn't it true mm. during that they used to treat pregnancy is like an illness in those days didn't they they did they did yes yes <clears throat> what do you mean by that what do what does what does that even mean <laughs> well uh well that they, they, you're supposed to stay stay in hospital for 10 days after the baby was born hmm. and and um oh they were very strict about and i mean you could have a bath before you went in hospital straight away but you still had to get in that bath again as soon as you got to the hospital. It was all regimented, you know, mm. uh -huh. all regimented. But uh, no, I wasn't having that again. I, I'd not forgotten it after 10 years, so I thought, no, no. <laughs> and again, again Dory, my, my mum was exactly the same. She had me in a maternity hospital and would flatly refuse to go again, have both my sisters at home. Yes. <laughs> Well, then, of course, when Kirsten came another eight years later, um, I thought, I I'll have this one at home. But by that time, I was 38, and the doctor said, no, you won't. <laughs> mm. So uh, so that was all right. But so that she was born in, uh, like, a maternity home rather than the hospital, you know, mm. all different uh, all different styles. Well, you experienced yeah. them all. So, you know, what was your favourite in the end? What was the, oh, what was the one you recommend? The most oh having it at home yeah yeah providing right. providing things go all right you know obviously yeah, mm, mm, yeah but course. you know to have, to have a midwife stay with you from eight o'clock in the morning till five o'clock tea time looking after you all the time and uh it was it was it was okay yeah okay yeah. did she did she make a good cup of tea oh no no my my father my father didn't go into work that day so he was a tea boy and then and then who made wonderful cakes um he um the word got round i don't know whether who had been out and, john had been out and phoned of course phoned his aunts to say you know tell my mum you know doreen's gone into labor 
So the next thing was, about two hours later, Aunt Annie turned up with a big chocolate cake. I didn't get a single piece. Everybody ate that cake. You threw it all the hard work. <laughs> and the midwife told me, oh, I've just had a lovely piece of chocolate cake, you know. <laughs> right, give it a push, give it a push. No. <laughs> Uh, come on, push Doreen and you can have a piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a carrot at the end of this stick. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And then, of course, my father took Paul and Michael because my sister lived next door then. She never came near my sister. She was terrified. She kept sending messages from next door. and um, she, uh, But my dad took Paul and, uh, and my nephew Michael uh, they were eight years, uh, no, they were 10 years old. Then. He took them to the pictures and left them at the Odeon, gave them money for ice cream and the bus fare home. And, uh, you know, you stay and watch the picture. And he came back home straight away. And half an hour later, he opened the back door and there's Paul sat there on the back doorstep. And he said, what are you doing here? And he said, I've I've come to I've come to see the baby. He said, "Well, it's not arrived yet, you know," but he he, he didn't stay in the pictures. He left Michael in the picture house and he came home. <laughs> he left him in the picture house and called yeah. the bus home because he didn't want to miss any yeah. of the action. Oh, it'd be yeah. interesting to ask him whether he feels that was he was cheated out of a really good film, you know, when somebody <laughs> else was paying and maybe some good ice cream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, I think we'll yeah. we'll wind that one yes. up, and I'd love to thank both of you, John and Doreen, Millie, uh, for this really enlightening chat. I, I really do feel like I have just a even greater insight into a few little bits and bobs. You've coloured around the edges for me beautifully. So thank you both. <laughs> nice been a real pleasure and thank you so much for, for to both of you for Mondays with Millie. I've really I've really enjoyed chatting to you, John. And yes. and to you, yeah. I'd go hungry, I'd go black and blue 
To make you feel 